From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. As a cook who's also an avid cookbook reader, I never tire of learning how place and culture work together to create cuisine. One country that hasn't had a lot of representation in English language cookbooks is Afghanistan. So I was pleased to spend time with the best of Afghan cooking. Zarguna Adele has written a book filled with personal stories and detailed recipes that take us into a kitchen where even the virtual aromas are seductive. I'm thrilled to have her on Good Food. Hi, Zarguna. Uh, Hi, hello, thank you. I'm so happy to welcome you to Good Food. Where in Afghanistan did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Kabul, the capital city. And there, when I graduated from Kabul University, I got a scholarship to study at American University of Beirut, Lebanon, where I got my master's degree in education. And then what happened, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and I couldn't go back. So I came to the United States and right now I live in Moreno Valley, California. Were you allowed to help cook when you were a child? (laughs) Not really. No. Uh, Like when I was like a seven-year-old, I was uh, always curious to see the inside of the pot and try to stir it. And that wasn't safe. My mom wouldn't like it. And I couldn't reach the pot because I was too little. So, and my mom insisted that I could not stir any pot until I was tall enough to be able to see the inside of it. And later on, when I grew up tall enough to see the inside of the pot, this was when my passion for cooking ignited. Because then I could see I was so delighted. I was so happy. (laughs) I love that. You know, in all the years that I've talked to people about their childhood memories and being next to their mom in the kitchen, I have never heard that said that you have to be tall enough to look inside the pot. But of course, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So when you finally were able to look into that pot... I imagine that most of your learning was just by standing and watching. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because uh, I grew up in a country where you learn cooking through many trials and errors and through eyeballing measurements to evaluate food consistency. So normally a year of practice turned one into a cook. And all married women were considered cooks. In fact, there was no demand for a cookbook, and you couldn't find the cookbook there. That's why. That's so interesting. So even after you were older, like maybe college age, and you were living in Beirut, you couldn't reference an Afghan cookbook? Uh, No, no. And now there are some, but some books are written like not by an Afghan. So it's written by someone who didn't grow up with the cooking So I find it like when I read it, I see some, I would say, like flaws and some differences and stuff like that. When when you were small and when you were still living at home, what was your like the dish that you would just wait for your mom to make that you couldn't wait to be served? My most favorite one was the Oshak dumpling. And that was because, you know why? Because my mom would let me take a part in filling it, even when I was five years old or six years old. And then I couldn't uh, seal it properly. 
And I didn't like looks from them and then didn't like it with my work was double checked by grown-ups and stuff like that. But I still enjoyed eating it. <laughs> Can you describe them? Yeah, so w- w- what happens is we have leeks in Afghanistan. It's a form of leek called gandana. They're a finer version of what we have in the United States. And we cut them really finely and we mix them with some spices. And then we have those wraps. Uh, they are usually round. And we fill half of that wrap with the leeks and we fold over the other half and seal it. And then we steam it. Then we prepare like a meat sauce that go on top of it. And we make a bit of yogurt before we transfer it to a serving dish. Mm. And actually the, the photo of this uh, dish is on the cover of the book. Yeah, it just looks so delicious. <laughs> and when you were living on your own, away from home, was there a dish that you would make yourself to remind you of home when you were particularly homesick? Oh, yes, yes. The dish I missed the uh, most was uh, called shorba. And it's one of the soups that you prepare with meat, bean, and vegetables. We first cook the meat, and then we cook the vegetables with it. And then, uh, so what's interesting about this soup is uh, in a bowl, we cut the tortilla in, uh, not the tortilla, but we can cut like uh, the Arabic bread and we cut it in pieces and put it in a bowl. We saturate it with the soup and we top it with meat and vegetables. That's what I miss. It's like a national dish of Afghanistan. It's served to the poor and to the rich equally. So that's what I like the most. And it's very healthy. You were gone for a long time. When when you were finally able to return to Afghanistan, how many years had passed? Oh, that was long years. I returned after 25 years. And what did you find from a, from a food standpoint? Uh, unfortunately, the authentic food I had been missing for such a long time had vanished and was replaced by unfamiliar food from the neighboring countries. The food aroma, flavors, and ingredients were totally different. And then the, I found out that experienced cooks had either fled away the country or they were, or they passed away. So that was so sad to see that happening. And the younger generation had brought with them the cooking culture of the countries they have been living in. So things that was so sad, so disappointing for me to see that. And that's what kind of inspired you to create a cookbook to document everything that you had learned and that others were willing to teach you. Yeah, even before that, in the United States, it was my hobby to cook and to make recipes. But I had so many questions in mind that were left unanswered because I couldn't find those experienced people to ask them. So that was the best chance for me to go there and complete my book. And fortunately, there were some people of older generation that could help me. So that's how I completed my book. And I came back with those recipes and I couldn't wait to, you know, write the book and finish it. Tell us about the group that you founded of diary speakers on social media with whom you first started to share your recipes. I knew social media was an effective tool to spread the word about authentic recipes 
And this is what was missing in the country. So my project was aiming at two objectives. First, I tried to filter my recipes through an older generation of Afghans who already had the knowledge of old recipes and who lived abroad. And the second purpose was to uh, reintroduce the Afghan recipes to younger generation living inside the country. And that helped. That helped, and the um, group was uh, getting bigger and bigger. And those social media comments I had were very effective to ensure the quality of my work. I mean, it was a really big group, like over 100,000 people. Yeah, uh, 120,000 people, mostly Dari-speaking from my country. Because I first wanted to reintroduce those recipes to them. Then I translated it into English, and I came up with this book. I know that this is a difficult question, but if readers are already familiar with Persian food and Indian food, and to some extent Turkish food— Can you talk a little bit about what similarities and differences are expressed in Afghan cuisine? Uh, To tell you the truth, I really love Iranian, Indian, and Turkish food. I had this food for a long time. I've been trying it. And in terms of spiciness, Afghan dishes stay somewhere in the middle, between Indian and between the two other, the Iranian and Turkish. And in terms of diversity, I see that we have a huge use of rice in our uh, cuisine. Because even our uh, long-grain rice, we have like uh, close to 17 dishes of long-grain rice that are prepared with meat, with vegetables and fruits. So I haven't seen this in other cuisines. Even our short-grain rice, we have like eight recipes and they're prepared with mung beans And uh, a lot of stews, like different stews, vegetable stews and uh, fruit and uh, meat and stuff like that. So I cannot compare our rice recipes to the neighboring country's recipes. But then the meat, like uh, kebabs, when you say kebab, to Iranians and Turkish people, kebab is a grilled meat. But we have, the, our kebab is anything that's grilled, baked, steamed, or slow-cooked. They're all called kebab. Then we have like the use of yogurt. It can make a drink, a very delicious drink that we prepare with dry mint, with cucumbers, and with salt and stuff like that. It comes out very nice. Beside the drink, we can use it as a bit for many dishes like dumplings and all the burani dishes and stuff like that. It can make a good bit. Or sometimes we use them as a topping for certain dishes, especially fried ones, because it balances. The very first photo of food in the book is of an eggplant tomato burani. Can you describe it and the role of indulgences and appetizers, as you call this chapter, in Afghan hospitality? In this appetizer, the eggplant is going through three stages of dehydration, frying and steaming with tomato slices and spices. It comes out creamy and delicious. So it's served on a uh, bed of yogurt and we mix yogurt with some salt and uh, garlic. And like other indulgences, this appetizer symbolizes Afghan hospitality. 
preparing a special treat for a loved one. So sometimes we, I remember when I was home and I would invite my friends home, like my best friend from school. Then I would think of making one of those, like let's have some burani bonjon for her, like eggplant appetizer that she really liked. And uh, then we serve it with the Afghan bread on the side. It comes out delicious. And uh, uh, many other dishes like samosas, dumplings, fritters, and fried stuff, stuffed dough like the bouloni, this uh, serve the same purpose. Thank you so much, Zarguna. I really appreciate um, you coming to the show, and I love the book. I, I like just went oh, through I'm, every. I'm glad you liked it. I hope you try some of the recipes. Oh, I will for sure. I mean, I just spent. I probably spent a couple hours with it the first time I opened it, just because every page was something so different and um, lovely to learn. I'm glad you liked it. It's my pleasure being in your show. I really enjoyed having my time with you. That was Zarguna Adele. Her incredible book is The Best of Afghan Cooking. If you want to try and make Ashok, the leek stuffed dumplings she talked about at the beginning of our conversation, just head over to our website. We've got the recipe at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, we cover both the surprising restaurant closures of the last year and the ambitious new talent making waves in L.A.'s food scene. That's next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com slash cars. Welcome back to Good Food. I was in the restaurant business for nearly 30 years. I opened and closed four restaurants during that time. Even though I'm intimately familiar with the pain, frustration, and loss involved, I'm somewhat at a remove at this point. But when I read that over 70 restaurants closed in the last calendar year, it all came flooding back. Los Angeles Times reporter Stephanie Brejo joins us to talk about the year that killed LA restaurants. Hi, Stephanie. It's so great for you to come to talk to us about this. Oh, Evan, thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. It's such a dramatic story. What were a few of the more notable closings? Maybe give us some venerable places that people will mourn first, and then maybe some newer that we didn't get a chance really to know very well. You know, a a few that I was really surprised to see were um, not one but two restaurants from Walter and Margarita Mansky. They're, of course, uh, the fantastic chef couple behind restaurants like Republique and Bicyclette and Mansky. And late last year, they managed to close two of their restaurants, one being Sorry Sorry Store, their sort of more um, quick and casual Filipino restaurant within Grand Central Market. The other, of course, being Petty Cash Taqueria, which people loved for um, well over a decade. So you see huge names. Sevilla, of course, who was a chef founder of Gorilla Tacos, started um, his 
you know, sort of walk-up window and restaurant, Angry Egret Dinette in Chinatown about three years ago. Uh, he closed that as well. He has a new project coming later this year. So it's, it is sort of shocking to see the, the large names. Nancy Silverton, she closed a steakhouse, the Barish that was inside the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. And then you have sort of smaller um, or lesser known restaurants that were still lauded and acclaimed and wonderful needle in a Cantonese restaurant in Silver Lake. Kin, which was gaining so much speed, and um, as our critic, fantastic Bill Addison had said, was planning on including Kin on, of course, the 101 list this year for the LA Times, and Kin closed in winter of this year as well. So places big, small, um, places that have been there for 70 plus years, places that have been open only a couple of months, it's really shocking to look at the sort of breadth of the kinds of closures. Talking with these owners must have been so difficult. Was there a commonality to the reasons that they gave for closing? Oh, well, that's a great question. It's, I think that what a lot of them stressed was the fact that restaurants are still recovering from the pandemic and the pandemic closures. And even though I'm sure to many diners, it looks like restaurants have made it out of the woods, they made it through shutdowns, they pivoted, they found ways to reopen again eventually. A lot of restaurateurs and chefs are still in the hole for back rent. They're still owed and paying off a number of expenses from that. You know, it's also the fact that although people were out and spending money this year, as a number of studies showed, a lot of restaurateurs have said that that wasn't necessarily reflected in dining out habits. And of course, inflation has been a big story this year. And diners have felt that, whether it was the cost of gas going up or the cost of groceries going up. And usually when people are feeling the pinch, one of the first things that they historically cut out is, of course, uh, dining expenditures and going out. Were you able to get specific comparisons from anyone comparing their business before and during the writer's strike? Because that certainly had to have an effect. Absolutely, yeah. In um, I believe it was spring, even before uh, SAG-AFTRA went on strike, I wrote a story on the effects of the WGA strike on restaurants, especially those who relied on a lot of business in terms of uh, set catering, uh, studio events, even business lunches. A number of them said that they were down, you know, as much as, you know, 30, 40%. The strike has greatly affected Los Angeles restaurants. And while it's been a tough year for restaurants across the country, Los Angeles especially. I was particularly struck by your conversation with Walter Mansky. What did he say was particularly difficult? Well, it's interesting because when I spoke with Walter, uh, we we spoke a lot. And uh, I think that one of the things that was surprising is just how much everyday mundane expenses can set a restaurant back. And that it isn't just the cost of ingredients that have gone up, but even the cost of, you know, parts and labor in terms of, you know, I believe he used the example of getting your oven fixed. If your oven goes down and you're a restaurant, you can't put that off. Uh, And it could be thousands of dollars out of your pocket, out of nowhere. Uh, So even the cost of basic maintenance for restaurants has gone up in addition to the things that, you know, we see all the time on the news in terms of ingredients and, of course, the rising minimum wage. You know, it's, it's a lot of little things that might not even be perceptible to most diners that are going on behind the scenes. I want to thank you so much for the reporting that you've done around this, and um, we'll be very interested to see uh, further work you do. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Evan. Always a pleasure. 
That was LA Times staff writer Stephanie Brejo talking about how brutal 2023 was for Los Angeles restaurants. For a link to her story, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Despite the harsh realities of owning a food business, there are countless energetic entrepreneurs eager to find an audience for their food. And Smorgasburg, the weekly outdoor food market at the Road DTLA, has become ground zero for incubating new talent. Two weeks ago, they launched their first market of the year with a dozen new vendors. Good Food was on the scene to meet some of the new class. First up, the Basket Taco Company serving Tacos de Canasta. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Carla Ramirez and we own the Basket Taco. Me and my husband, my husband is Abraham Mota and he's my chef. So my concept of tacos is not the average tacos that everyone knows, like asada, pastor, but um, we do soft tacos. They're um, very popular in Mexico City and you can find them inside of the basket. So the tacos keep warm with the, with the steam inside in the basket. So we have the great opportunity to be part of Smorgasburg. We can't believe it when we saw the email. <laughs> to be honest, right now I'm living a dream come true. I'm happy to share with, with more people our gastronomy as Mexicans. We're not just tacos de asada, we're not just baja tacos, we have a lot of more to share. We feel so blessed and we are so grateful because we worked so hard last year. Sometimes we do like five events on the same day, caterings, markets, deliveries, everything with the tacos. Next up, we met Chad Fung, aka the Cambodian Cowboy. Oh, my name is Chad Fung and I run a Batabang barbecue. Today's my first day. I'm dishing out a Texas style uh, with a Cambodian uh, barbecue also. So, you know, it's like you know, uh, dry rub and a little bit of Cambodian influence. So if we have a sausage called Twaco. So Twaco is a uh, 100% beef, has about 20% beef fat. It has galanga roots, garlic, and then uh, we put uh, cooked jasmine rice to age it. And it's pretty phenomenal. It's like uh, one of our biggest seller. And also our pork belly has, uh, has Cambodian influence. In it. We, we cube it really nicely to get that even smoke, the even seasoning, and we use a little chartreuse seasoning, our compote black pepper, a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of fish sauce, and we smoke it maybe a couple hours and it's phenomenal. So we love to see everybody out here from, from LA and around uh, Southern California. And now, a taste of Northern Italy by way of Eastern Europe. Well, uh, my name is Elif and uh, this is Glad. Uh, we're making Dureco-style focaccia. Dureco is a city in Northern Italy. It's a small town. And uh, they're making their focaccias crispy, thin, and uh, in big batches. And uh, it's a street food in uh, Northern Italy. And uh, we wanted to uh, make it a street food in here. And uh, we created uh, different variations from uh, Balkanian cuisines and uh, Eastern European uh, tastes and combine them and infuse them with the original focaccia di Reco. There were candied fruit skewers inspired by Chinese street food, Oklahoma-style smash burgers, Puerto Rican empanadas, and a long line for Chef Yaz. We are selling traditional Jordanian shawarma, but let me say, I was trained by Syrians. They actually have some of the best reputation 
amongst the board when it comes to shawarma. But here we are, uh, the tried and truest, the newest and truest, imported spices, handmade sauce, bread, Miyamiya shawarma. Yazid Sudani, or Chef Yaz, is the LA native behind the spit at Miyamiya shawarma. Born and raised in Woodland Hills, he traveled to Amman to learn what makes Jordanian chicken shawarma unique. How is it different? Well, we'll let Chef Yaz tell you. He's our guest this week on In the Weeds. Hi, everyone. My name is Yazid Sudani. You can call me Chef Yaz or Yaz. I am the founder and CEO of Mia Mia Shawarma. Mia means 100 in Arabic. Uh, Mia Mia is what we say to someone when something is perfect or 100%. Like, you know, here in LA, a lot of people talk about keeping it 100. In Jordan or in the Middle East, when we speak Arabic, you know, you ask someone how they're doing, they say, Mia Mia, that means they're doing great, they're perfect. I was born in uh, Woodland Hills, California, raised also within the same city between the, you know, Valley and Los Angeles. My father is fully Jordanian and uh, my mother is fully Palestinian, so I'm half-half. I'm uh, so you can call it, you know, it's just the motherland. Before I got into uh, the food business, I was actually in wealth management. Uh, my long time or my long life passion has always been uh, surrounded by, you know, the culinary world. I remember when I was 16 years old and, you know, I finally got my driver's license. Uh, the first thing I did was just drive through, you know, all the crevices and cities of Los Angeles to try to find uh, what my favorite foods are. You know, even during my time at, in wealth management, I always thought, hey, I'm going to let a couple decades go by, sell my book of business and open a restaurant one day. And uh, when it's come down to shawarma, that all really got ignited by a trip I took to Jordan in my late teens, uh, finally having the opportunity to do so. Each and every day, I, we really went out and ate a shawarma at least once a day, sometimes multiple times a day. And, you know, essentially when I came back home to Los Angeles, you know, I came to, I, I still had those same cravings, those daily cravings. It's, it's like, you know, getting off of something, you know, you, you still want your fix. So uh, I actually started to take a closer look at, you know, what I wanted to do with my future after the passing of my late father, who was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, in mid-2022. I took some time off of work within wealth management and started to really think about how life truly is, you know, beyond short. And and that's when I thought, you know what, why don't I go take a trip to Jordan and, and, and really start this project up and, and take matters into my own hands. So... Uh, I took a flight on New Year's Eve 2022 going into 2023, and I spent a month and a half there, uh, started my training, and then uh, came back home. Wasn't as good as I wanted to be. I wasn't ready to sell to the public just yet, but uh, during that time period, we began to import our grill and get a better understanding of like the spices that we wanted to use, but again, techniques were just off, so I went back in May of 2023 for another month and a half. So I lived there for three months last year. And once I came back, I, I truly felt I was ready. I wasn't gonna leave until I was ready. And uh, in June, we started to do tastings over my backyard for families and friends only. They were giving us their honest feedback, invited, of course, all of our uncles who are shawarma fiends. And it went from, you know, 10, 20 family and friends to serving 200 people in my backyard. That's, that's essentially how it started. Yeah, back in Jordan, I would say shawarma is everyday food. Think about In-N-Out Burger out here. You know what I mean? How, how simple, uh, you know, you, you can always rely on it, right? You're going to get the same product each and every day. You could obviously go enjoy a you know shawarma dinner or whatever the case is with your family, but it's an on-the-go food. It really is categorized more so as a street food. Honestly, you know, after a lot of the wars that have taken place in the Middle East and other countries have had to, you know, seek refuge, Jordanian shawarma itself is really, I would say, 
ran by the Syrians at this point. There are Lebanese variations uh, where they use, you know, pita and, you know, sometimes utilize lettuce, tomato, you know, other things in the sandwich. But original Jordanian shawarma, honestly, was beef only. Like there's there's a establishment called Reem Shawarma in Amman, Jordan, and all over Jordan, and they simply do beef, right? But I would say present day, Syrian-style shawarma is truly what floods the streets of Jordan, and I think it's for the best. And you can say the difference between, you know, something like a Lebanese-style shawarma and a Syrian-style is, I would say, the simplicity. Um, the Syrians, they use a very thin bread to wrap the sandwich. It's, it's, it's called saj bread, or you can call it, we even call it shrak. Uh, you can only replicate this thinness by hand, right? So they, they, they get this dough extremely thin, and they briefly press it on a hot stone. It, it cooks up like so f- extremely fast, honestly, almost instantaneously. And that's the base of the sandwich. I would almost call it a vessel because to me, at least, when it comes to shawarma, the meat should be the star of the show. So it all starts off with that saj bread and then, of course, the garlic sauce. On the Lebanese side, and contrary to, you know, like the Syrian style, I would say, they use a more concentrated garlic sauce where they usually take pure garlic, a whole lot of it, blend it up, add oil, as well as, uh, you know, probably fresh lemon juice, right? And, And you get sometimes more of a coarse product, which is still delicious. I love it. But what I really liked about the product I was getting in Jordan was that the garlic sauce was extremely creamy and not too garlicky. Like I would leave, you know, my shawarma outings on a daily and not feel like I was, uh, you know, uh, intruding someone else's scent with, with you know, garlic, if you will. You know what I'm saying? I had no garlic breath. That, that's what I really liked about it. It's much lighter, fluffier, creamier. So again, you start off with that saj bread, the creamy garlic sauce, and of course, pickles, right? You want to cut the richness of the meat in the entire sandwich and just add some acidity, some texture as well. You want to use a crispy pickle. And finally, just the meat. With us, we like to use a, uh, we use chicken. We use the whole chicken. Of course, we stack it up. On average, I would say our stacks are about 150 pounds. Thin slices, of course, very nice and crispy. And we roll it all up, take the whole sandwich. We like to press it on the shawarma grill itself. We get these really unique grill marks. And finally, we press it on a flat top griddle. And, And that in itself is essentially the same product that you would see in the streets of Jordan. But anyway, in, in, in final, what we do with the sandwich after it gets uh, toasted on the flat top is we add a dollop of that creamy garlic sauce on top, put another slice of uh, chicken. And what we like to do is add a bit of pomegranate molasses drizzle on top. And that's exactly what I was taught, like I said, back in the motherland. That's the traditional way. That was Yazid Sudani, the man behind the spit at Mia Mia Shwarma. You can find him alongside dozens of vendors at Smorgasburg every Sunday at the Road DTLA. Head down there this Sunday to try chicken shawarma, tacos de canasta, Cambodian barbecue, Turkish-influenced focaccia di reco, and more. In a minute, the extraordinary journey of a young woman from the mountains of Laos to California's Central Valley. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. We talk a lot about immigration on this show. After all, immigrants bring food, techniques, and recipes with them and enrich our lives with the flavor of their homeland. We often touch on their stories, but don't tell enough of them in depth. 
Writer and photographer Lisa M. Hamilton has documented agriculture and rural communities around the world. With her latest book, The Hungry Season, she documents one Hmong woman's struggle to survive war, loss, and displacement while she holds on to the identity that centers her. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Evan. It's good to be back on the show. Oh, it's great to have you back. Could you introduce us to Ia Mua, the extraordinary woman at the center of your book? How did you come to meet her and to decide to follow her in such depth? Um, Ia Mua is an extraordinary woman who grows rice in Fresno, California. Anyone who's been to Fresno, California knows that growing rice there is an extraordinary act to begin with um, because it's just about the opposite of your average rice-growing environment. But the specialness of Ia goes way beyond her rice growing. She's a really a, a portrait of resilience. Her journey begins in Laos. How were Hmong people generally treated in Laos? Well, they are technically an ethnic minority, the largest ethnic minority in Laos, um, but they were latecomers to Laos. The Hmong are originally from China and migrated largely uh, in the past 200 years via Vietnam into Laos. And as a result, they tend to occupy the highest elevations in this mountainous country, so generally the poorest land. And for a long time after their arrival, they really occupy the lowest strata on the social ladder. And that's changed in recent decades as they've gained political power and social organization within the country. But they still, in some ways, particularly because of their history during the Civil War, can be treated as pariahs in Laos. Laos is also a country that's been ripped apart, both by the American presence in Southeast Asia and by internal conflicts. What was um, her life like there, and and what precipitated her family's move out of the country? Mm. Well, you know, most Americans know about what we call the Vietnam War, but far fewer know that at the same time as the war in Vietnam, there was a parallel conflict happening really in tandem in Laos, which is just over the border to the west. And Ia was born during this conflict. Some would say at the at the time that it really renewed and then escalated from there until when she was 15 years old, she escaped the country. When she was 13, the battle between really capitalism and communism was won by the communists. And those who had allied with the Americans um, in the conflict had to either hide, submit, leave, or face the danger of this new communist rule that was seeking them out with a vengeance. You have an incredibly powerful um, moment in the book where you describe the kind of scrambling of, of the family's decision what to do and how she is actually given a choice of who to follow, 
her parents or her brothers. Yes, imagine Ia as an 11-year-old girl in 1975 when the war finally definitively ended and the Hmong leader of the, at that point, resistance fled to Thailand. Ia and her family and the rest of the Hmong people who had allied with the Americans suddenly had to face the choice of whether to stay and try and wait out what seemed like a pretty dark future or to leave. Most of Ia's family rushed toward the border with Thailand, but her father and her mother and her youngest brother turned around after just a day because they thought it was a doomed journey. Her brothers continued on because they were young and they had fought for the Hmong leader, General Vang Pao, and it was obvious that they would be targeted by the new regime. Ia lay in between. So this 11-year-old girl is given the choice, do you want to try to make it to Thailand or do you want to go home? And it's this first moment when we realize this is an extraordinary person and and will inside of her because she says, you know what? I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to be one of the lucky ones to make it through all of the barriers. And so she goes. How long does it take before Ia arrives in Fresno and where has she spent most of that time? You can imagine that Ia is leaving Laos not alone, but alongside 100,000 Hmong, other Hmong from Laos, and that's just the Hmong. There are also a Lao people um, coming over, other ethnicities, as well as Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees all streaming into Thailand, and many of them hoping to end up in the United States. Ia and her family ended up staying in a refugee camp in Thailand for 15 years. So she arrived as a 15-year-old and left as a 30-year-old woman with eight children. Wow. Um, So why Fresno? How did this central California city become such a hub for Hmong people living in the United States? Well, the American government, in accepting refugees from its conflicts in Southeast Asia um, had the initial strategy of trying to disperse these refugees all over the country so they would just sort of assimilate. So they replaced through aid organizations with sponsors all over the country. But Hmong life centers on the community. So assimilation, immediate assimilation, was uncomfortable. And it ended up really not being an option. Instead, Hmong within the United States, many of them chose to do a sort of secondary migration following clan leaders to places that became hubs. Today, Minneapolis and St. Paul is a particular hub, probably the largest Hmong population in the United States, Wisconsin, and so on. But early on, Fresno became a hub for a variety of reasons, chief among them that Fresno is the sort of capital of the agricultural valley that runs down the center 
of California. And a lot of Hmong moved there thinking they might be able to restart their lives as farmers. Of course, farming in Fresno is a far cry from farming in the mountains of Laos, as many of them found out. And the vast majority of Hmong who moved to Fresno were not able to enter this sort of capitalized agriculture that dominates in Fresno. So how was um, Ia and her family able to do that? How did they um, find land to farm? How did they begin that process? Well, in a word, they were able to do it because of Ia and the resolve that's really at the core of her character. When she came to the United States, she found that because she didn't speak English, she was relegated to farm work. And this didn't suit her. She's, um, she's, she's an alpha, not a follower in any means. So she began as a farm worker, but she was offered a little strip of land by a relative. And the relative said, do you want to grow rice? Ia didn't even know that this was possible in California, but she immediately said yes, uh, because it was an opportunity to grow this particular kind of rice, not so much to grow rice sort of for the year, for the everyday meal, but to grow it for this one particular meal that comes at the end of the harvest season. It's this single meal during the year that is hard to live without. And she had lived without it for so long in the refugee camp and before that during the aftermath of the war and during the war when they weren't able to farm rice. And so she jumped at the chance. And from, you know, just uh, a few rows on a farm, she got this hunger for more And she, over the years, grew that into two, then four, and ultimately 10 acres in Fresno, where she grew a variety of things, but ultimately grows four acres of rice by hand. If you can imagine that several football fields worth with no machinery at all. Um, It's an extraordinary amount of work. And does this rice stay in the community? Is it commodified at all? This rice is a hot commodity. I don't think there's ever been a year when she hasn't sold out. It has shifted from being, you know, a a sort of subsistence level growing of a staple food to growing a very special commodity of sorts that is sold exclusively to the Hmong community. Um, It's prepared in such a way that uh, it holds a very particular and very precious meaning to the Hmong community. So, you know, it's interesting. I did the numbers over the years and I found that people will pay three to five times as much for this rice as they would for rice in a store. A five-gallon bucket, uh, last time I checked, was going for close to $200. Every year she sells out, people start calling a month before it's even ready, trying to get in line to buy it. So Ia fixed on this particular variety of rice and it became her lifeline. Can you read a few paragraphs for us that describe her relationship to it? Sure. 
They call this particular rice mble nia tai, grandmother rice. Some say it's named for the person it came from. The farmer got the seed from her brother, who got it from a friend, who got it from his wife, who got it from her mother. That mother has a name, but no one would have used it since before she was married. As an old woman, she would just be called grandmother, grandmother's rice. Others say that the rice was given this name because it yields so much, taking care of you with its bounty the way a grandmother's love softens the sharp edges of life. And it's true, this year, all the farm's rice grew tall and thick, but none like the grandmother rice. In mid-October, when the wands of ripe grain have bowed under their own weight and curved back down toward the earth, the arc of the grandmother rice is taller than anyone on the farm. Below, its long, sword-shaped leaves have plaited together in such a tangle that the spaces between rows disappear. Entering this thicket, the farmer must first push with her shoulder, then draw her arms through, as if opening a heavy door. As she passes inward, the vegetation rejoins behind her. Were she to release herself and fall backward, the grandmother rice would hold her up. When the farmer is enclosed like this, the only view is straight up to the blank blue sky The road running alongside the field disappears. The din of traffic fades. As the honeyed fragrance of rice fills her head, she can imagine herself back to the place of her memories. The village where she was born was swallowed up by the jungle in the years after the war, but it is still alive in her mind. All around are steep mountains shrouded in clouds. The village itself is level, set amid gentle green hills with blue skies above. It is never too hot there, never too cold. The air is sweet with sugarcane, the land thick with wild fruit trees. Every morning, a choir of birds. Even today, 40 years later, standing in this grandmother rice can transport her back to there. It's almost as if she could reach into the tangle of leaves and touch her parents close to her once again, an orphan, no more. So beautiful. The prose of this book is just so wonderful. Where is Iamua today? <laughs> well, she's still in Fresno. She's still on the farm. Um, she's, she's farming a little less than she used to, um, and she's now farming only rice. But she's still there, and... I think she'll be there for the rest of her life. You know, I, over time, I have spoken with so many farmers in so many different places, so many different kinds of farms. And most of them talk about how farming is essential for them. It's the only thing they can imagine themselves ever doing. With Ia, that dedication that centrality of farming to who she is and what her purpose is, it's like no one I've, I've ever met. I can't imagine Ia um, not farming. It's almost like her, her 
she and her rice have become sort of intertwined. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's just such a marvelous book. Very powerful. Oh, Evan, thank you so much. I'm really glad you liked it. That was Lisa Hamilton. Her book is The Hungry Season, a journal of war, love, and survival. If you're going to read a book over the next few weeks, I urge you to choose this one. You'll find a link to it on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, how a unique friendship spawned the first English language cookbook of Hmong recipes. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. When it was published in 2009, Cooking from the Heart was the first English-language cookbook of Hmong recipes and culinary traditions. Fifteen years later, there's a new edition, focusing on the Hmong-American experience. It features traditional recipes alongside narratives and stories of Hmong people and their journeys through China, Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand. The new edition was compiled and written by Sammy Scripter and Shen Yang. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. How did the two of you meet, and how did Cooking from the Heart, the book, eventually come to life? Well, I was working in a grade school in Northeast Portland, working with an enrichment program for gifted children, and my desk was situated in the classroom of English as a Second Language. And I think it was 1980, all of a sudden, one in every four children in our school was Hmong. And I got to know all these wonderful young kids. And Shang, in particular, was interested in meeting me and talking and asking me questions. And from that, we got together as families. Shang is the age of my daughter, and one of her brothers is the age of our son. And they played back and forth, and we shared food and just developed a friendship. Shang's parents were always including us in wonderful meals and traditional feasts, and I tried to share some of my cooking with them, and we just developed a friendship. It just happened. And, and Shang, tell us about your interest in creating a book and how you decided to collaborate to make it happen. Well, I think Sammy and I back in 06, I believe, Sammy and I was talking about one day we're going to put a, write a book together and including with our friendship, you know, uh, through the years. And Sammy said, are you ready? And I said, yes, we're ready, but we live in a different state. So we meet up quite often and sometimes Sammy will visit us down here. And I will visit Sammy up there and we do a lot of phone calls. So Sammy and I finally said, okay, we're both ready. So that's how we began. The, the challenge was that the Hmong community did not have a written language until the 1950s. And so nothing had ever been, been written down either in English or Hmong or probably any other language. And I loved the food and I, I thought it would be nice to have something that really celebrated the, the Hmong experience and the Hmong community. And Shang was my willing partner. Let's, let's talk about food. Um, what would you typically see at a Hmong dinner party? What kind of dishes are served and how are they laid out? I think food-wise, we would have rice, condiment, chili pepper, 
we're just going to be uh, with cilantro, green onion, and lime juice, and fish sauce. That's the one that our main condiment. But we will have main, we have, will have soup, such as like a tofu, chicken tofu soup to pour with mustard green and stir fry or any vegetable that lay around the house. And Shang, I understand that sometimes you serve pumpkin juice alongside a meal. Can you describe it for us? So pumpkin juice, we do just we boil it with hot water, cut it into cubes, and we boil with water and we add a little sugar to it, or we can do without sugar in preference. Uh, for our, if we have elderly people, we usually just do plain, uh, just water and pumpkin boil until the pumpkin gets soft, and we serve like that as more like a tea to our elderly. And if for the young people, we like to put a little sugar to bring a little sweet for the young people or for our children so they can drink it. Are there pieces of pumpkin in it or yes. is the yes. juice kind of poured off? No, it's a piece of pumpkin in there. That sounds wonderful to me. Yes, very refreshing. One of the most interesting recipes in the book for me is the stir-fried pumpkin vines recipe. I think most Americans have never thought about eating the vines. Well, there's the fall. It actually, the early fall, like as late summer, it brings a lot of uh, pumpkin vine. You can peel off the pumpkin vine uh, by the stamps, and you take the soft part, you break it into, uh, pick into smaller pieces, and take the vine as much as you can take up the, God, what's that? Is, that? is that the vine for the core? Sammy, is that what it is? The very tip of the vines is what you're eating. Pea vines are often used in the springtime, and, and you can have a, a whole dish with uh, just a little bit of ground pork and then stir-fried with pea vines or, in the fall, pumpkin vines. Yeah, pea vine, pumpkin vines, squash vine. And the flour, too. We can even use uh, passion vine. And how do you prepare it? Is it stir-fried? You can stir-fry. So we will peel that off, set it aside. You can use any meat of your choice, uh, ground pork, chicken, beef, shrimps. Uh, whatever meat that you your preference, and you can that, and you can put some garlic on the side. If you want a little spicy, you can cut a little couple of chili pepper. We like to use fresh chili pepper, so we can dice a couple of fresh chili pepper if you prefer your uh, dish to be spicy. That and just stir fry in a hot oil and cook your meat first in advance, and you put the vine into it. I use salt, and I use a lot of Mrs. Dash. I use um, white pepper, and a little fish sauce, and that will bring up the taste of the pumpkin vine. It's very tasty. Can you talk about your green papaya salad? My green papaya salad, back in when we wrote the book, back in the day, there's not a lot of papaya later around, so we use carrots. Yeah, when, when Shang first came to my house, and I don't know how old you were, maybe 15 or 14, Shang? I think I was 14 when I came to your house. There weren't as many Asian vegetables, you know, in the grocery store. Um, Shang's mom brought um, seeds and, and grew some of her own vegetables, but Shang wanted to make papaya salad at my house, and there was no green papaya that she could get. And so she used carrot instead, and it's really pungent. It's got a lot of garlic, fish sauce. Fish sauce, lime. Lime juice, yes. And, well, it's a very special treat, and you'll always find it at festivals, especially like New Year. 
and it's made to order. So if you like it really spicy, they throw in more chilies. If you like it really tangy and salty, they'll put in more fish sauce. If you love garlic, they'll add more garlic and tomato. And we also use, yeah, we also use the shrimp paste. Mm-hmm. That right now you can find at any Asian store. And it's put together in a mortar and pestle. Well, I want to thank the two of you for um, for joining us. It's a lovely book and um, a cuisine that people need to know more about. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Well, thank you. That was Sammy Scripter and Shang Yang, authors of the recently updated Cooking from the Heart, the Hmong Kitchen in America. We've got Shang's recipe for green papaya salad, sub carrots if you need to, on our website. You know the link, kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Lara Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Nick Lamponi and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. My weekend tip, head to Smorgasburg tomorrow for some Jordanian shawarma or one of Glad's Turkish-inspired focaccia di reco. And then go back next weekend for tacos de canasta and a taste of Cambodian barbecue. It's a delicious way to support our local talent. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food. <music>